Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you here. Uh, man, what a, what a beautiful day out there, right? It's cold, but uh, the sun is shining, and uh, I was driving down the, the hill this morning in the fog, and it's like, ah, like, oh, this is awesome. But uh, it's, it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping together with you, looking at uh, the Word of God together. And um, today we're, we're looking at the betrayal of Jesus, as Sarah just read for us, and the character of Judas, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, has always kind of been a bit of an interesting figure to me. He always kind of fascinated me. Um, he, he's, just a, he's just a fascinating character in, in the story of the Bible. And I remember when I was, uh, you know, around middle school, high school, uh, the, the church that I grew up going to, and my dad was the pastor uh, in Garden City, Kansas, uh, the, the church would do a, a, a full-scale Easter production every year. And, and we, would, we would do this for several years. We would rent out the, the local high school uh, theater and, it, you know, the whole shebang, right? You know, lights and costumes and uh, music and uh, uh, everything, right? And it was a big production. We did this at Easter. as a huge, huge event. The community would come out and, and be a part of it. And uh, they, they called it, we called it the Living Last Supper uh, because the first half of the production, the whole thing was a dramatic depiction of the, the last week of Jesus' life. But the first half, specifically, uh, was, was a recreation, kind of a, a dramatic depiction of the famous painting by da Vinci, The Last Supper. You know the painting I'm talking about, right? You've seen it. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. Um, and, and what is a painting of is, is uh, the, the Last Supper, which we, we just looked at a few weeks ago in Luke, right? The, the Last Supper, Jesus is seated at the table with his disciples. You know, in the, in the painting, Jesus is right in the center uh, of the table, and all the disciples are you know, kind of surrounding him. They're all on one side of the table, which I always thought was a little funny. It's kind of like, gather around, guys. We've got to take a photo, right? Uh, call the waiter over. Hey, can you take a photo? Um, they're all on one side of the table, but uh, they're kind of like, you know, uh, gathered around him, kind of huddled up. Um, and the scene is depicting the moment where Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. Uh, he, he said, one of you is, is going to betray me. And, and uh, in, in the Gospels, it tells us that they begin to question and begin to discuss amongst themselves, is it I? Is it I? Who could it be? And that's what this painting Shows that's the moment that this painting captures, um, and and so in in this play that my church would do uh, every year, they would recreate this scene on stage. You got all the disciples, everyone at the table in costume, frozen. All right, so you see the you see the painting, a real life still version of the painting, uh, and then one by one, each of the disciples would come to life, and they would tell a story. And they would, they would give a monologue about their relationship with Jesus, how Jesus had called them, uh, tell the, the, the context of their relationship with Jesus. And one by one, each of the disciples would ask the question to end their, you know, their speaking portion, is it I? Jesus, is it I? And I, I remember this, and uh, the... The, the thing that stands out to me the most from this, this was years ago, uh, this, was, this was like mid-90s, peak evangelical, like church culture uh, type of thing, right? But like it, it stuck with me, um, and in particular, the character of Judas. I can remember almost word for word what Judas said as he gave his reasonings for betraying Jesus and kind of gave a defense for uh, you know, his, his motives in in uh, his treason, 
is what it really amounted to. And, and I've always been fascinated by, by this character of Judas. And, and I think part of the reason why is we all resonate with a, a betrayal story. The, the, the act of betrayal is something that really hits deep, I think, in a lot of us. You know, some of the most famous stories throughout history are stories of betrayal. You think of, you know, way back, you know, Julius Caesar uh, and, and the assassination uh, on, on his life. And, you know, et tu, Brute, right? Uh, he was betrayed by, by, his, by his friend. Think about the, you know, the American Revolution. You know, in American history, you've got Benedict Arnold, right? He, he fought for the, the Revolutionary Army, and then he defected to the British, and then he ended up fighting against his fellow Americans. And, and, and so Benedict Arnold is kind of held as this, like, uh, you know, kind of an example of a, a great betrayer. And then, of course, of course, uh, the moment in Empire Strikes Back when it's revealed that Lando has been working with Darth Vader. No, Han, not Han. Um, one of the greatest betrayals of all time, right? Um, but we, we are looking at the greatest betrayal of all time today in Judas betraying his friend Jesus, his master Jesus. And, and what we're going to see in this passage, and, and this, we, we know and we understand that betrayal stories resonate with us deeply. And, and Luke, in this passage, is showing us, he, he, he's really giving us a, a sense of the scope of what Jesus is going through as he moves closer and closer to the cross. And, and each of the Gospels kind of looks at this progression, looks at this narrative uh, from a different perspective. They, they give different details and, and try to highlight different things. Luke's unique perspective here really shows us the agony, the, the sting of rejection, the, the hurt and and. The, 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 the separation from his father and the, and the crushing weight that that was for Jesus. And so we see a series of uh, increasingly crushing rejections and betrayals as we go through this story in Luke. And he's painting a picture of a man who is, uh, who is um, going down further and further into a place of rejection and darkness and pain. And this story... Uh, is one of those stories. And in this story, we see Jesus, his, his, one of his closest friends turns his back on him and betrays him. Um, and so we're, we're gonna look at this. We're gonna look at this story together. And as we do, I just wanna, I just wanna have something on our minds as we do this. I'm gonna talk a lot about Judas uh, today, because he's a fascinating character and he's, he's highlighted in this story. But this is not a sermon about Judas. Um, this is the, the main character in this story is not Judas. The, the main character in this story is, is the main character in every story when we read the Bible, and that's Jesus. That the person of Jesus is who we're looking at today. So my hope is that as we go through this today, uh, you come away from this with a, a deeper knowledge and a deeper awareness and love for Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. And I've, I've kind of highlighted three, three things that I think we see in Jesus. So all the note takers can rejoice. Uh, I've made it easy for you. Um, um, since I'm a pastor's kid, they, they, they're even all P's, right? So all P words. So I, just, I had to do it. So um, we're going to look at his pain. We're going to look at his plan. And we're going to look at his promise. 
Jesus' pain, his plan, and his promise. And so first off, we're going to focus on the pain that Jesus experiences here in this moment in Luke 22. We see that Jesus experiences betrayal at the hands of his friend. And like I said, it's part of a series of, of increasingly crushing and devastating rejections, ultimately leading to the cross. Read in verse 47 with me. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, what's the scene here? If you were here last week, uh, the passage immediately before this is the scene of Jesus in the garden. He's praying to the Father, asking God, Lord, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? And we see the, the agony of the realization that this is the only way, right? And we see the, the, the uh, resolve of Jesus to be obedient to the Father as he prays in the garden. And immediately following this scene, he's, he's come to this place of, of tasting the agony that's to come, right? Tasting the rejection, the separation from his Father that's to come. And immediately following that is when this scene takes place and these events are set into motion. Now, we knew this was coming, right? This is no like big, uh, big reveal or, or major spoiler because Luke has told us earlier in the chapter uh, that, that Judas was planning to betray Jesus. This is the moment. And, and the thing that makes this betrayal especially painful, I think, for Jesus is that it is at the hands of one of his closest friends. Think about who Judas was for a minute. Uh, Judas is, is repeatedly referred to all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the Bible, as one of the 12 disciples. He's one of the, the inner circle of, of Jesus' followers. Jesus had lots of followers, right? Hundreds of, of followers, people who, who listened to his teaching, who, who were following him as he traveled and as he spoke. But these guys were the ones that lived with him, right? They, they spent every waking moment with Jesus. There was no one on the planet more intimately connected to Jesus than these 12 men. And, and Judas is one of these guys, and he's even listed or referenced uh, in, in John 6. There's a passage where uh, it, it, John tells us that many people began to desert Jesus because his teaching was too hard. And it, and it says that the 12, though, remained with Jesus. And in that passage, Judas is referenced. He's referenced as the one who will eventually betray Jesus, but he's there, right? He stayed faithful to Jesus when so many were abandoning him. Judas was there when Jesus fed 5,000, right? Judas was there when, when Jesus healed people, when, when he brought sight to blind people, when, when lame people regained their, their strength. Judas was there. Judas was even, most likely, part of the, when Jesus empowered and equipped his disciples to go teaching and performing miracles. Judas probably performed miracles through the power of Jesus. Judas knew Jesus. He was close to Jesus, but ultimately betrayed him. And in Judas, we see an example here of someone who followed him, 
someone who had proximity to Jesus, but ultimately compromised, and, and it led to his destruction. The, the Gospels let us know several times that Judas was operating under the influence of Satan. Uh, it, there's, there's multiple references, uh, like if you looked uh, earlier in, in Luke 22, uh, in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. Right? And there's other gospels that reference this. So, so Judas is acting under the influence, under the control of Satan. And, and we say, well, how could this happen? How could, how could Satan gain access to someone who is so closely connected to Jesus? Well, we don't know exactly for sure, but we have some clues. We, we know that, that Judas had a recurring issue of, of sin in his life. We're, we're told that Judas tended to, to steal from the, from the money. Uh, he, was, he was kind of the, the finance keeper, the, you know, the, the bookkeeper for the ministry of Jesus. And uh, we're told that Judas would skim a little off the top for himself from time to time. Right? And, and so we, we know there's some dishonesty there. We know there's some, some greed and some theft there. Uh, there, there's, there's places where it tells us that uh, Judas raised objections to how money was being spent, uh, not because he cared about poor people, but because he was greedy. And, and so we know there, there were areas of compromise. We know there were areas of sin in Judas' life. And what it seems like is that Judas had allowed these compromises, this, these, these habitual sins to go on unrepentant, unaddressed, and it seems that Satan gained a foothold because of that. You see, Satan has no ability to control us if we're with Jesus, right? If we have Jesus as our Savior, as he is the Lord of our life, there is no claim on our lives there's no power that Satan holds over us. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 4, 27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. We have the ability to resist his attacks. We have the ability to keep him away because of the power of Christ. Yet when we have areas in our life that we have not yielded to, to Jesus, places in our, in our life that we've, we've not given over to him in, in repentance, we're inviting him, we're allowing him to have access, and in Judah's case, this led to his destruction. There's a quote by, by Klaus Schilder says, it's the peculiar majesty of Jesus that he can conquer man without man's first approaching him. But Satan's frailty is proved by this, that he cannot approach a soul unless that soul has first turned to him. We, we can let Satan gain influence in our lives. We can let the enemy gain a stronghold in our lives when we don't deal with our sin, when we don't deal with the things that are, are 
we, we, we don't want to deal with, we, we don't want to let go of, this is an invitation to give a foothold to Satan. And so Judas, under this influence, under this control, uh, approaches Jesus. And, and he approaches him to give him a kiss. And, and the sign of the kiss uh, is you know, not altogether unusual in that time. It was, it was, a, it was a sign of, uh, of reverence, of, of affection for close friends. This is, this is a, co- a common uh, greeting. Um, but because it's a sign of affection, it makes this act especially painful, I think, for Jesus. It's, it's a special type of hypocrisy to approach Jesus in intimacy, but do it as an act of betrayal. So Judas approaches Jesus. In verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? We have this moment between Judas and Jesus. Kind of like if you're watching the movie of this scene, uh, you know, it's kind of like everything zooms in and everything kind of moves in slow motion. Right? Everything around kind of goes blurry for a moment, and you're just focused on these two characters. And Jesus is not surprised. He doesn't react in fear. Jesus knew this was going to happen. He's not caught off guard. In fact, he had, he had told his disciples outright, one of you is a devil. One of you is going to betray me. And in the midst of this pain of rejection, in the midst of this sting, right, the, the, the knife is being stabbed in Jesus' back, how does he respond? By speaking a kind word to Judas. He, he, he's not condemning him here. He's not... You're not uh, raising his voice at him, but I imagine him just speaking gently to him, Judas, right? And in that word, in, in the name Judas, there's, 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 uh, there's a familiarity, right? Judas had heard his name spoken by Jesus many times before. When you, think of, think of when, when you're a good friend or, or your spouse speaks your name, there's something in that affection or in that closeness uh, and, and I imagine Jesus speaking in that tone, Judas. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Even now, even in this moment of rejection and betrayal, Jesus is offering mercy to Judas. Right? He's offering him a chance to repent and say, no, this is not at all what I intended to do. This is not what I meant to happen Jesus, I'm sorry. He, he offers Judas a way out. He offers him a, a kind word, a merciful word. Does he repent? No. The, the betrayal is complete. And he goes forward with the act. And, and so in this act, we see, we see Jesus pain. There's a sting here. There's, there's a, a darkness here that is coming over Jesus, and, and we feel it in this text. And so the first thing we, we see uh, in Jesus and we see in this, in this story is his pain. The next thing we see is his plan. We see that in the midst of everything happening here, Jesus was laser-focused on what he came to do. His resolve was set. Nothing was going to interrupt what he came for. 
And we see in verse 49, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So if, if Judas, Judas and Jesus's moment had kind of like moved into slow motion, it's like suddenly that moment ends and everything starts speeding up, up again, right? Like suddenly the camera zooms out, swords start flashing, and there's chaos, right? The scene erupts into chaos. And you know what? That might have been exactly what Judas wanted to happen. We, we don't for sure know the exact motives for why Judas tried to betray Jesus or, or sought to betray Jesus, but, um, but it seems likely that Judas was uh, trying to force Jesus' hand in a sense. Judas was, was hoping for a Messiah, for a political savior, someone who would regain control for the kingdom of Israel and, and overthrow Roman rule, right? And so it, it seems likely, it seems possible that one of the motives Judas might have had was he had seen Jesus' power, he had seen the potential in Jesus, and so he finally took it upon himself to serve as the catalyst for Jesus taking control, right? For, for the, the insurrection to finally kick off. And Judas was the one who felt he would make that happen. And, and so it's likely that as this scene erupts into chaos, right, and, and violence happens, that Judas may have been hoping for that exact response. Yes, it's happening. This is what I was hoping for. The overthrow is going to take place. The insurrection is starting. It's forcing Jesus' hand. And it's possible the other disciples were kind of hoping for the same thing, right? It's possible they, they may have been hoping for a similar outcome. But in verse 51, Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, Think about for a second, like, if you're the, if you're the guy whose ear got lopped off, uh, you're either really lucky or you're really unlucky in that moment. How bad was Peter's aim? Uh, he's, like, if, if you cut off just the ear, like, you, you either completely miss the head which you're aiming for or you're aiming for something altogether and you somehow manage to catch the ear. Like, like uh, I mean, I guess he's, he's a fisherman, so you, you got to give him credit for trying. Um, but, like, it just always, it always cracks me up, right? Like, uh, just the year. Okay. Uh, but, but there's something unique here in, in Luke that we see. Uh, like I mentioned, all the different Gospels uh, kind of give different details of the story and, and highlight certain elements. And, and in this story, we see something unique. The, 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 the violence, the sword, the ear getting cut off, that's recorded in all four Gospels. But in Luke, we see the healing. And we don't see that in the other Gospels. Luke points out... Make, makes, a, you know, makes a point of, of telling us that Jesus actually healed the guy, actually healed his ear. And, and I think this is critical. I think this is important for us um, because what we see here, thinking about the plan of Jesus, right, the, the, the purpose for what he came to do, his character is on display even here. His, his character is to heal people. Jesus' character is to heal. And that is not going to be swayed, 
even in the midst of a deep betrayal, right? Even in the midst of this moment of chaos, Jesus' character is true. Jesus' character is to heal. And he's showing the disciples in this act. He's, he's demonstrating for them as he's saying, no more of this. He's showing them that violence is not the way. This is not the plan. This kind of stuff, these types of actions are undoing what Jesus intends. This is the opposite of what Jesus once. You know, the disciples probably had an idea of what a Messiah would look like, what a Savior would look like, uh, and it probably involved some violence, right? It probably involved uh, some brutality, and, and Jesus is making it very clear in this moment, that is not my way. That is not the way and, and I think it's, it's really important for us to see in this instance and in other instances throughout Scripture that violence in the name of Jesus is not of Jesus. Violence in the name of Jesus is not of Jesus. Jesus says, I know you're tempted to take matters into your own hands, right? I know you're tempted to, to move things this direction, but we're not going to fight that kind of battle here. Christians have, uh, have gotten this wrong a lot throughout history. Uh, there have been multiple occasions where, um, where there have been things done in the name of Jesus that have been harmful, that, that, have been, uh, that have been horrible, horrific acts done in the name of Jesus. And, and I think there's some sense in which, um, the, you know, the justification is made, you know, well, the ends will, will justify the means. Um, and, and guys, we have to get this right. We have to understand and see what, what Jesus is displaying in this moment, but we see it throughout Scripture as well, that when violence becomes the only means to accomplish an end that we perceive as, as necessary, right? Well, let me tell you something. That end is not something that God intends for us. If violence is the only way to achieve that end, then it's not an end that God has in mind. You don't have to look very far to see that there are, there are modern, there, there are current examples right now of violence being done in the name of Jesus. And guys, it's on us to speak out against this kind of stuff, to say, this is not of Jesus. Because his plan does not involve that. If there's any question about the type of Messiah Jesus was, Jesus is, he was demonstrating it for his disciples in that moment, and he demonstrates it for us, if we look through Scripture, I mean, th this this is consistent with his character. He said in in Luke six, way back when we when we looked at that passage, right? Uh, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. He says to if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to them. Right? Th this is the way of Jesus. And and here's what's I think 
uh, kind of embedded in this. If, if we are going to, if we're going to rely on Jesus to accomplish his means and, and not feel like we need to step in and uh, take things into our own hands, what, is, what, is, what are we doing in that? Well, we're trusting Jesus, right? We're trusting God and his power and his sovereignty. And, and we have to understand the plan of Jesus, right? What he came to accomplish has never depended on our help. It was never dependent on us. His plan has always been his idea and his work. So we, we see just a glimpse in this passage. We see a glimpse here of Jesus' plan. And it's his plan. It's not our plan. He's the one who thought it up. He's the one who's doing the work. And the last thing I want to look at is, as far as what we see in Jesus in this passage is his promise. We see that Jesus allows a temporary victory for the sake of his larger, ultimate triumph, which is to come. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's a little unclear exactly what is meant by this statement, power of darkness. But I think what we see here in what Jesus is saying is he's acknowledging there's a cosmic reality. There's, there's, there, are th- there are forces at play that are bigger than what we see. There are, uh, th- there's, a, there's a kingdom of light. And there's a kingdom of darkness. Uh, Tim Keller points out that the, the kind of the original language here in that, in that sentence, the power of darkness, really refers to this idea of authority, to control. And, and so what Jesus is referring to here, I think, is there's, there's an authority of darkness that is reigning at this moment. He's acknowledging that. He's saying darkness is winning the day. And in uh, in part of what is meant by that, and, and Josh Rice, who on staff here, he helps us do sermon research each week, just has some, some incredible insight. Uh, he pointed out that in, when Jesus refers to this, this power of darkness, this authority of darkness, Jesus has never experienced this before. Right? You and I, we're, we're born into this kingdom of darkness and we're brought into the light of, of God's salvation. Right? Jesus has always existed only in the light always in the presence of the Father, never separated. And, and so in this moment, in, in this entire passage, right, we see the agony in the garden, we see the, the sting of betrayal here, we see the continued rejection, we're gonna see Peter rejects him next week, we see the mocking of the soldiers, and then ultimately we go to the cross, right? But in this moment, we see the, the power of darkness. Jesus is starting to sense this separation the crushing weight of his father. He's never experienced that before. Can you imagine the depth of agony Jesus is in here? As Jesus is saying, there's, there's 
a temporary authority that the darkness is being granted right now. And it's important that it's temporary, right? Jesus is acknowledging that he's allowing this to happen. He's making a point, he's making us a promise that this triumph is temporary, it's necessary, but he's allowing this to happen in order to accomplish his ultimate victory over the darkness. In order for Jesus to win, he has to lose this battle. And so as, as Jesus speaks to the, the chief priests here with you know, the, the disciples there in his presence as well, he's making a point. He's establishing his innocence. You know, if you look in, in uh, where he says, um, uh, sorry, I lost the verse two. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple? You did not lay hands on me. He's saying, you had plenty of opportunity to come get me in the light. Right, but you are, you are operating under the authority of, of darkness here. This is, this is what you're doing. And, and so he's, he's, he's reminding them of his innocence. You, know, you couldn't come after me in the daytime because you know that I'm innocent. There's nothing, you don't have anything on me that will stick. So you have to come after me in the darkness. So he's, he's acknowledging his innocence and their affiliation with the darkness here. But... He's making, it's, it's a stunning claim, really. He's, he's claiming his sovereignty over the darkness, right, in allowing it to win the day. It, right, look at what he says. He says, this is your hour. It's like he's giving, this is what you're allotted. This is the, the time frame that you get to win. And, and embedded in that, implied in that, is an end date, right? The, the time is going to run out it's going to expire. So embedded in his statement here is, is yes, an acknowledgement of defeat, but ultimately this is a claim of authority over the darkness. Guys, we can take heart because of this. We can, we can, uh, we can take heart because we know that darkness will never have the final say. I love this quote from John Calvin. He says, while all things are mingled in confusion and while the devil, by spreading darkness abroad, appears to overturn the whole order of the world, let us know that the providence of God shines above in heaven to bring at length to order what is confused. And let us, therefore, learn to raise the eyes of faith to that calm sky. Tim, Tim Keller has a, a kind of a great illustration uh, that, that, that goes along with this. Uh, if you've ever been in an airplane uh, in the middle of a storm, sitting on the, on the tarmac, right, before you take off, the storm is all around you. Uh, it, it seems scary, right? It seems like there's, there, this, is, this is significant. But as soon as you take off and, you know, you climb to 30,000 feet, you get above the clouds, it's calm. Right? You look down on what seems so dark and what seems so dangerous and what seems so foreboding, and, and suddenly it loses its power over you. It, it doesn't have any power over you. And, and as John Calvin says, let us therefore learn to raise the eyes of faith to that calm sky. Man, what a, what a good 
God, what a beautiful Savior we have in the midst of this betrayal, right? In the midst of this dark moment for Jesus. He delivers comfort for us by reminding us of his power and in that, his promise. His promise. He's not going to let this be the end. He said, there, there's, there's a different ending to this story and I am in control of it. So those are the three things that I think that as we look at this passage, we see, okay, we see Jesus pain, the suffering that he endured, the betrayal that he endured. We see his plan. He was the one who is calling the shots here. And his, his plan does not involve us taking things in our own hands. His plan does not involve violence of any kind. And we see his power. We see his ultimate authority over everything. And so with that in mind, what can we take from this? What, where can we apply from this passage in our own lives? And, and I think this, this is really um, kind of a sobering moment for us to examine ourselves. When we, when we look at Judas and look at what, what he was capable of doing, I think there's a real warning in here, especially for you guys who are here, for myself, church people, people who are following Jesus. Right? We, we are so prone to self-righteousness. We are so prone to think that our proximity to Jesus is enough. He's keeping us safe. But going back to the, the Easter pageant that my church put on, I, I remember uh, listening to each one of these disciples ask this question, is it I? Is it I? Right. Could it be me, Jesus? And, and you know what's striking is, is uh, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that anyone suspected Judas. There was, you know, when, when Jesus said, uh, one of you is to betray me, it's not like the disciples all said, we know who you're talking about, right? Like, they, they are genuinely concerned. Could it be me? And I think they realize that it could be, right? It could be me. I could be the one to betray Jesus. And if the disciples question their own faithfulness, shouldn't we examine ourselves? Shouldn't we ask hard questions of ourselves. And I think that if there's anything in this story that we can learn from in Judas, if we can gain from for our own sake, it's that proximity to Jesus does not equal faithfulness to him. Some of us have, have mistaken knowledge about Jesus for actually knowing him. And what's the, and what's the marker? What's the... What's the um, the, how can we answer this question? Has, has Jesus taken hold of my life? Do I know him? Well, Judas, by all accounts, loved and followed Jesus. He most likely had performed miracles, right? He had most likely proclaimed Jesus as Lord Preacher Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, perhaps 
It's the most dangerous of all positions for a man to become well-known and much respected by the religious world and yet to be rotten at the core. To be where others can observe our faults is a healthy thing, though painful. But to live with beloved friends who would not believe it possible for us to do wrong and who, if they saw us err, would make excuses for us, this is to be where it is next to impossible for us ever to be awakened if our hearts are not right with God. To have a fair reputation and a false heart is to stand upon the brink of hell. We have to ask ourselves, you guys, is my heart right with God? Have we invited God to examine our hearts, to reveal to us areas of unrepentant sin? Invite him to reveal to us areas where we've not fully surrendered, not fully sacrificed for Jesus. We invited him to, to reveal to us areas where we're too proud to let people see the real us. It's, it's been said that we can be impressive or we can be known, but we can't be both. And every one of us chooses. You can be impressive or you can be known, but you can't be both. Will you choose to be known? Will you choose to be known by, by God and by the people around you, by your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because you see, here's the reality. We all betray God. Spoiler alert, okay, right? Is it I? Yes! You betray Jesus. I betray Jesus. And, and it's, it's so easy for us to do because think about the depth of love God has for us. It is so overwhelming. It is so pervasive on our lives that if we forget for a moment, that in itself is an act of betrayal, right? It is so, the, the love of Jesus has for us is so great that if that doesn't fill our minds constantly, that in itself is even an act of betrayal. And that doesn't even, you know, that doesn't even go to mention the moments of outright sin, outright betrayal. And so, just like the disciples, we, we need to not trust our capacity to hold ourselves fast, right? To hold ourselves faithful. We've got to be the first people asking the question, Lord, is it I? And, and when we do that, we, we have to trust his capacity to hold us fast. Jesus gave himself over to the power of darkness. He submitted himself to the agony of the garden, the betrayal, and the cross because of his deep love for you. And he overcame it so that betrayers like you, betrayers like me, could be his friends. I'm going to pray uh, as the ushers get in place for communion, as the band comes up, um, and we're going to go to the Lord's table together. But let's pray. Lord, we need you. Lord, we, we, we realize our capacity 
to betray you every day as Judas did. So God, convict us. Help us to see the, the places where uh, our, our hearts have, have not fully yielded to you, where, where we have not offered ourselves to you in complete surrender in sacrifice. God, and, and, and may we be able to see that letting go is the only way that we'll truly be saved. That your love for us and your mercy for us extends even now. It's not too late. God, help us to do that. Help us to remember your power is so great. It's great enough to forgive our sin. It's, forgive, it's great enough to, to cover every, every rebellion that we could ever think of committing against you. Rejoice in that.